Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I do data engineering and machine learning at Databricks. And I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Ben Wilson. I teach myself JavaScript to make pretty documentation sites at Databricks. And you're really good at it. It's it's, it's impressive. <laughs> um, but today we have an awesome guest that is not a specialist in JavaScript. He does actually cool things. No offense to to JavaScript developers out there. Um, his name is Piotr Skalski. Um, we went over the pronunciation just now, and I, I think I nailed it. Um, he close, studied, enough. Studied, close, close enough. Close enough. Cool. <laughs> uh, he studied civil engineering and computer science and then entered the data world as an ML engineer specifically focusing on computer vision. Currently, he's a CV engineer at RoboFlow, a site where uh, computer vision data sets, pre-trained models, sort of a variety of out-of-the-box solutions can be found. So, Piotr, I was wondering why you decided to focus on CV specifically. Oh, uh, it's a hard question. Uh, I, partially by accident. So, uh, you mentioned that I studied civil engineering. I decided I don't like it after finishing five years of um uh, of study. Um, so I went back to the university and on the first semester we have statistics. I kind of liked it. Generally speaking, probably one of the coolest uh, um, uh, things we had uh, back then. So I started to take some courses in ML. And on the second year, I believe, we had like basics of uh, computer vision. Like old school algorithms, mainly with OpenCV, stuff like that. No, like, you know, fancy uh, neural networks. Um, but I found it was quite interesting. And interesting. And by the way, I back then I was working as a JavaScript developer, so don't hate on JavaScript. Um, but uh, yeah, um, that's where it, where it all started. I started to you know, learn a little bit on my own. And I decided the best way to learn was to teach others. So everything that I learned, I started to write a blog post and describe, okay, this is uh, how you can do this and this. And with time, it grew a little bit and helped me to get my first job in computer vision. From then, I, I never looked back. And I still think, for me, it's the coolest uh, part of AI, so-called AI. I don't like that. Um, phrase, but whatever. Uh, even though that NLP right now is probably the most the hottest one, I think that in reality, uh, if you think about applications in real life and uh, amount of models that are actually deployed, uh, computer vision is simply more mature. Probably way more places where where the models are deployed. Yeah. So yeah, I. Like I said, kind of by accident, but I, I think that was the right choice. So. Yeah, and I feel like CV is an extremely like sexy part of ML, as you mentioned, and it's very fast-paced and growing a lot. Um, where do you see it used in practice? Like, What are the common use cases? Oh, man. Uh, before I joined RoboFlow, I was working for a startup that uh, my job was solving problems of other customers and people. So you can think like very broadly, like uh, from... From sports, which people love, I even have like a small repository uh, where I show some use cases. But sports is like growing because 
uh, data analytics start to be a thing in sports, like uh, if you think about NBA, for example, or Premier League, um, GMs make decisions on trading players based on, uh, you know, alignment with the style of play of their team or what they desire. And they uh, make all of those analytics uh, analysis based on, on the data that you extract. And to be able to have the data, okay, that player set a peak uh, or sh- shoot uh, a free with the hand on his face or something like that in his face, uh, something like that, you probably need a lot of computer vision to extract the data automatically and in a reliable way. So sports is one thing. Uh, a lot of um, use cases uh, are in infrastructure, so-called. So we can think about pipelines, uh, power lines, uh, dams. So anything where you have uh, a large area to cover, which is very hard, typically was done manually. Yes, yeah? so typically if you think about power lines. Usually there is like group group of people, and like on average, like every two, three years, somebody looked at that place uh, in the whole grid. Right now, you automate that with drones and with uh, streaming directly to the cloud and analyzing that that stream, looking for all sorts of problems. So this is another place where you obviously have a large uh, amount of uh, clients because those are usually very uh, wealthy companies with a lot of problems uh, uh, and yeah computer vision helps uh, manufacturing obviously so uh, and a sort sort of uh, place where you you i don't know build cars or engines or or i don't know candy bars or whatever uh, they use computer vision to count stuff to uh, to keep people at safe distance from some things that shouldn't be attached, for example. So, so over there, obviously, there is a lot of that. The sexy use case is obviously uh, yeah, smart cars, yeah, but uh, I'm not sure if that's actually being deployed like on a larger scale. There are companies that are trying to do that and they use computer vision. So, in my opinion, it's actually quite hard to think about the place where you wouldn't be able to use computer vision. Like, like OCR, like anything that has a document, an image of the document, and you are capable of translating that. First of all, you need to be able to extract that information from the image. Then you can use the language model to translate. So, so OCR is very popular, processing of documents. A little less sexy, obviously, but probably heavily used. Yeah. So, so yeah, like I said, hard, hard to look for a place where you don't have computer. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, out of curiosity, Ben, did you ever use CV in your chip processing days to assure quality? Uh, I can't talk about too much of that stuff still. I'm still under an NDA, but tool manufacturer vendors, uh, I know that a big one is a customer of Databricks. Uh, and for an ML flow use case about a year ago, got to sit down and talk with that team for a couple of hours and they were they're currently in the process of converting actually uh, just as you mentioned the open cv stuff that was their the foundation like the bedrock mm-hmm. foundation for mm-hmm. processing of uh, sem images so when you're looking at 
really, really tiny stuff on, on silicon wafers. And uh, the lithography might be messed up, which is going to cause further downstream processing issues where you can't deposit metal, you can't deposit oxide layers. So you, you get shorts and stuff in your metal layers. Uh, they have a system that's been in place for years that is based on traditional you know, computer vision object detection. Mm. And they're running in parallel doing, like we talked about before we started recording, Torch uh, models that are... Uh, super sophisticated and they're able to make inferences about whether something is a problem or not uh, with the the old school OpenCV implementation they're running it was just a lot of code they had to write to say what are the what is the morphology of what we're detecting here do we like sizing what sort of shape is it can we infer that it's three-dimensional or is it two-dimensional and they, it's just loads and loads of code that they had to write. Now they just deploy this model and they run them side by side because they have to do validation for years on stuff like this uh, to make sure that it's performing the same way or better. Uh, yeah, it's it's everywhere in semiconductor. It's in physical manufacturing as well. Uh, stuff that people might not even think about, like vendors or companies that make stuff like potato chips there's cameras everywhere in that line that's trying to detect burnt chips so they don't get into the bag and that's all done with like deep learning like cnns nice okay Uh, yeah that makes sense and if you sort of think about it there's so much video photo imagery just out there and it's sort of a, a difficult medium to work with for like historically based um, like array processing or even for NLP, it's just sort of a different format because it has so much data in there. Um, so yeah, it's super cool that we're starting to enter an age where this, this data is consistently leveraged. Um, Peter, I, I was wondering if you could elaborate on sort of how you got into this space and how maybe beginners looking to enter into the CV world could learn about it and start developing a skill set. Mm-hmm. So like I said, like for me, the everything was kind of like accident. <laughs> uh, so so the fact that I got interested in computer vision, I already already mentioned that. But how I kind of like grew was I I grew heavily in the open source uh, areas of GitHub, um, and yeah, I can I can with high confidence say that whatever I'm doing, whatever I will be doing probably in the future will be related to com- to computer vision and to open source. So um, it's a little bit different route than, than many other people take because usually uh, the typical route would be uh, you, you finish university and you just look for work at, uh, you know, some low-level uh, data analytics team yeah, and just grew there. And I saw, saw people kind of like growing uh, this way, and it's obviously okay. Uh, it's just I don't really can like, I because I'm passionate about open source. Being in corporations that are usually only leveraging open source rather than building it, although it's changing, uh, but still, uh, I don't feel that well over there. So I was growing in, in the open source on GitHub and in small startups that I, I just simply got picked up because of my projects. Um, so yeah, I can say that 
all, every job that I got for the last probably like five years, um, I got because of open source. So it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun. And you can, which is a little bit counterintuitive, but it, you can do things for free and really earn the money from it after some time. So just a little bit of persistence. Um, Would you recommend that route to other people? You really need... So, reality is right now that many people that code don't like to code. They're only there for money. And I'd say that if uh, if that's you, then probably going for open source is, is less fun. Uh, it, it is cool if you like coding. Like, if you're really kind of like a geek, yeah, if you have, like, no problems sitting 15 hours a day sometimes, like, which is, you know, I'm a little bit auto-destructive this way if I'm very passionate about some topic and I really like to dive deep, then I can spend, like, 15 hours coding or something like that. Um, and it works well in open source, obviously. Um, if you are okay with just, you know, giving that uh, to people for free. Um, if that's you, then absolutely. I think you will have a lot of fun. You will find a lot of friends online because of that. Uh, you will have a lot of really cool conversations uh, because of that. Um, so, depends. If we talk about real geeks, let's say, then... I have a, a sort of a personal question for you, uh, and it's about the culture of the com- of the country that you come from. Mm-hmm. Anecdotally, I've noticed over the last fifteen years, okay. people who are kind of in your generation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're really good at software development, like shockingly good, mm-hmm. and. It's a consistency across a bunch of world-class developers that I've had a chance to work with at several different companies. Mm -hmm. The people from Poland seem to have a dedication to excellence in this particular field. Do you know why that is? Is there something that's culturally aligned to excelling in a profession like that more so than other? I don't have like a concrete answer because probably it's hard to have a concrete answer to question like that, but I can tell you like, uh, so anecdotally, one, one more time, like if uh, I recently saw a map of, ca- of European countries where people were answering, what is your uh, dream job? Mm-hmm. And a bunch of countries in Europe had like YouTuber or influencer or something like that. And literally in Poland, it was software engineer. So that's one thing. I, I'm I'm not sure like where it where it comes from, uh, uh, but that's that's one thing. I also know that uh, coders from Poland consistently are in top three when it comes to competitive uh, coding. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you would look up competitive coding competitions like those high tier yep. you would see polish polish coders in top three so it's it's like uh probably russia china u.s poland 
when it comes to 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 those competitions. I I myself were, was not groomed to be a coder, but a friend of mine who had a, a, a big influence on me moving from uh, civil engineering to coding was groomed to be a competitive coder. Just he was probably not dedicated enough. Uh, but we had a lot, a lot of conversations uh, about that. So you know, it's typical for for guys in like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen to spend spend like vacations on camps for competitive coders. Like if if you are in that field already, like he was there. He he was just not good enough. But he know he he know people from OpenAI and from Google guys who are like. You know, well paid and and uh, respected around the world. Like he was spending vacations with with them, and it just happens. Yeah. So there are there are there are definitely there are schools where you can go if you want to go to high school where you specifically hunt for top schools to be, you know, top coder later on. There are definitely uh, a lot of camps or in holidays where you can spend time with other coders and it's like crazy you get access to like professors from top universities in Poland to spend time with you and discuss like complexity of algorithms with you and you're like 14 let's say <laughs> and you spend time with you know guys who usually spend time with like advanced people at the university so it gives you a lot of like you know edge over the competition but obviously, you know, you also have this conversation about, okay, is it, is it really childhood and all sorts of like uh, psychological reasons why maybe the grooming so hard uh, at this young age is, is not the right move. But yeah, I mean, like it, it happens. So I, I, and the sad story about part of that story is that we don't really have like any large uh, IT startup. Like all of those people, like migrate to other companies, you know, countries at very young age, and just just grow there, you know, but uh, don't really build a lot of stuff in Poland. That just, was going to be my my follow on yeah, question. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I know why it is because I've worked with companies or mm-hmm. worked at companies that preferentially go after uh, like sort of coder for hire consulting from poland and they're it's not a three month hey just write some code for us for three months and then you're done it's more like let's test this person out for a month or two and every single time i've seen a company do that the person's effectively on full-time staff for like five Mm -hmm. or six years Mm -hmm. because you get a like a principal or senior staff level developer for the cost in the united states of a, a junior developer but you're so getting that was, that consistent was, results. We, we, yeah. So, uh, so definitely, we had this uh, people from Hungary. Also, I guess when you had when you consider value for money, uh, mm-hmm. you're probably in the in the right spot. But it's also changing uh, when we talk about not not about the skill set, but the price tag. Uh, I guess the COVID changed a lot of things. Because before COVID, uh, it was very typical for people in Poland that uh, you you 
it worked through like some some middlemen. Yeah? So there was a company right. in Poland. They hired like a bunch of developers, like three hundred of them, and they, you know, just just lease them to com- companies from outside Poland. Um, you know, office, you know, everything. That that was the status quo, and through COVID, initially I was super scared, but after some time. In COVID, I, I worked for like three companies at the same time, and uh, and I left that that middleman. Uh, and I guess everybody is happy. I get paid more. They pay less probably than they would pay for me for the middleman, and everybody is happy. So I think that right now is very typical that we work directly for uh, companies outside. But uh, that wasn't the case before COVID. Before COVID, I would say many people work for the middleman. Right. Yeah. yeah, at Databricks, I had the privilege of working with a Hungarian contractor uh, at DataPow. And it's the exact same thing. They're sort of a middleman that lease out really top talent. Um, and he was, we, we went to an onsite together, actually in Warsaw. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were chatting about how the middleman basically takes 30 to 50% of the salary. And if the, you sort of have an open source version where People can either build a relationship and then work directly with the customer, or there's a, a free version or something like that. It's a lot more economically efficient. And um, sure, yeah, and, and I'd say open source helps helps you to do that because the yeah. main problem is uh, how do you find those people? Like you need to yep. be able to, right. to be found, yeah. And if you are just just coding at work and don't really contribute anywhere and don't have those conversations and you know, don't meet cool, interesting people on the internet, and it's quite hard to be found. And those companies for, for years were kind of like leveraging that. Yeah, if you have 300 developers and marketing team, you can get found. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah, I've heard Ben preach this: like, just build good stuff, and everything else will fall into place. Do you feel like you have to add sort of a marketing layer on top where you're? You're like pretty and going to meetups and like putting on the face of a good developer, mm-hmm. or do you just need to be a good developer in your opinion? I I'd say uh, I go to like one or two meetups a year. Honestly, um, I do some um, some you know remote appearances. Uh, if if I don't know if, if the meetup is in Montreal and I'm in Poland, then. Then, then I'm happy to to uh, be remotely. Uh, so I don't think that you need to do a lot of this like uh, hardcore networking, which many people believe is very you know hardly required. I'd say I'm pretty good at hyping projects that I work for, and I can do that straight up through Twitter and, and LinkedIn, probably. So I don't think you need to... I think that marketing projects is important for other reasons. I, I don't like to code for my own. Like, I don't like to just... You know, there are people who just... Are, like, I can spend weekend hacking something and uh, I will push it to my private repository on GitHub and, you know, uh, spend time from time to time changing something and that's okay. I like to... To, to build something that is used by other people. So I get like very bored very quickly if I do something that is not used. And 
kind of like naturally because of that, I got better at hyping projects. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, depends. Yeah, if you if you just want to do that, then you know to to code for yourself, then it's okay. But I guess then it's kind of like it's hard to still hard to get found. Yeah, if if your repository has three stars, maybe it happens, and it's <laughs> you and your two pals that you spend. Uh, um, um, you know, a few hours a week uh, talking to, then it's a little bit hard to get found. So it is important, in my opinion, to be able to market that, but in, in, a, in a very like lean back and very non, uh, uh, you know, it's like, like not, not in the way that many people think that you need to do that. So you need to go to meetups and talk to people and, and invite them on LinkedIn. And then, you know, if you will be very persistent in talking to them, they will hire you or, you know, it's, I, I never liked that. And I don't really believe that works. Maybe that works in like San Francisco or something like that, where in any meetup you can meet like people from like, Fortune 500 uh, companies uh, left and right. Uh, but uh, in middle Europe, uh, if I go to Meetup, I, I don't see a lot of people from those companies, honestly. Even in San Francisco, it doesn't really work. I think it, I think it, some people believe that it works because they're like, oh, I heard this one guy who, who, you know, met this person over at this, this tech meetup at this, this museum of art, you know, that landed on the job at, at this big company. It's like, no, they, they happened to be there and they met that person, but that person then looked at their GitHub profile and saw that yeah, they had yeah. 17,000 commits to 36 exactly. different open source packages. Probably not because of, of one conversation over the group. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the best way you to get attention. increase your chances probably. Yeah, it's always like one more thing that can increase your chance. Yeah. But I say like, if you will do, cool demo and post it on Twitter, you can reach out to like hundred, you know, of, of people like this guy uh, and, and, and meet them. So you know, it doesn't really matter. I'd say. That makes sense. Um, all right. So big success. You build so many cool things online and you wind up at RoboFlow. What's your day-to-day look like? Um, I do cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like um, so, so big part of what I was always doing was uh, creating tutorials, but always in the form of written, uh, written stuff. And since I joined Roboflow, I, I'm doing a lot of tutorials about computer vision, but in a video way. So, so that is an adventure. Um, I get to play with like latest model and it's part of my job. Yeah. So, uh, and a new model happens uh, uh, to be released and it's getting traction on Twitter. I get to play with it and assess whether or not it's something important on, or just a hype. Uh, and if that's something that is legit, then we can create something around it, which is awesome place to be that somebody pays you to, know play play with latest toys uh yeah sign me in um and i'm doing open source um and i get paid for that which is also awesome <laughs> so yeah i'd say it's pretty 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 good deal yeah to be here 
speaking from someone who does some of that stuff uh, with evaluation of things, I was wondering your take on when you see something that's getting tons of attention by people. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's talking about, oh, this is the new killer of this thing, or this is mm-hmm. the hottest new thing. And you go and test it out, and you get through maybe a half a day of work testing this new thing out, mm-hmm. and you're like, did I do something wrong? Like, why are the why do the results suck so much? And then you realize after another couple of hours that actually this thing that you're evaluating actually does suck, and mm-hmm. it was just marketing BS that was that blew it out of proportion. Mm-hmm. What sort of feeling do you get when you see something like that? So I'd say like cherry picking results is very popular. Like what I do is usually like uh, on the edge of um, like legit research. So people from universities that just work on latest, you know, models and, and open source because they usually open source that code. Hope like usually because I see also a trend of not open sourcing the code, which is a little bit uh, alarming, but. I hope Somebody wants to start a company. Yeah, uh, I guess so. And, you know, also, sometimes you have collaboration, like you have like big yeah. tech founding a research at the university and then, then they are resistant to, to publish the code. They can just talk about the research itself. Um, different story. Um, yeah, uh, so cherry picking is a thing. Yeah, so very often they just, they just run like, went to test and they just picked the the three or four uh, working examples and the rest of it is is like so-so, yeah? So I can tell you that I usually write about it. Like, I'm usually not really resistant to to just just say, hey, sometimes it's very funny, you know? So sometimes it's like, you know, Especially with language models. My favorite example was um, Llama 2 was released. Uh, but but the, the, So with the language model from Facebook. And it was like, by itself, it was like, after, after people started to work on it and fine-tune it and optimize it, it became like a juggernaut. Everything right now is built on it. Yeah. The, the plain version of it was like, was like super politically correct. And one yes. of the things that was super... Uh, funny about that is when you ask it about how do you kill a Docker pro, uh, Docker Docker container, for example, or Linux process, and it was like you 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 cannot hurt and you cannot kill <laughs> and you know it's wrong, yep. regardless if you talk about living being or something that is yeah, like it's like no it's a container. So it was like I was like God damn, uh, um, it, it was. Too much of, of correctness injected into that model, for example. But it is just a funny example. But it happens a lot that those models are, you know, hyped by companies. I just I just usually end up at, at just saying, okay, this is what I found. This is funny. But I I think that there are better better options. So I I have a good Place that I don't am, am not forced to create content, for example, on a model that suck, <laughs> which would be uh, very problematic for me. Um, so yeah, I'd say p- publish fun fun story about it and just move on. Nice. Do you have a process that you have started to develop for like get a representative like production use case? 
do the model, publish the content? Is there like, are there steps that you always take to evaluate? I mean, it depends on the model itself. Like if you, we talk about some use case that is already very, um, like if I worked with, with 15 different object detectors in the past, for example, and it's just another real time object detector, then I already am very comfortable with just going through the readme, uh, doing few, few examples and having opinion on it. Uh, but lately, uh, with the rise of multimodality, for example, there start to be a lot of models that are harder to just, you know, where you cannot just follow the path that you followed like 15 times before because that model does something that is that is changing the game somehow. Yeah, So I, I'd say that this year there were like probably two models for me that I had this like feeling that, okay, I, I have I have never seen something like that or I saw something like that, but never as good. Yeah. One of that is segment anything mode from Facebook, which was like super well polished model that was like killing everything from day one. And it was like nothing else. I, I couldn't like compare that to anything before. So like that model was like, it, it, and it was so good because it enables you to do things that you wouldn't be able to do before. So then I don't have any process. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, you know, opening Google Colab and try to hack some initial, uh, initial demos and share that on on on, on Twitter, um, and and take demos from others because people like the beauty about the Twitter is that everybody is hacking, and usually when it's like something hot, then everybody is like cooking the same things and thinking about different angles maybe, but. Uh, you can learn a lot. So when through the first few hours on Twitter, there's so much happening that you can can get uh, gain a lot of knowledge from this. But also, like you feel the buzz also. Yeah. So if that's another like model and, and it's like just a, like tiny better at some specific metric, uh, I usually I, I, this is usually people ask me like which model should I use. And I and I rarely say that you should look at the metrics because, in my opinion, like if, if we talk about like real time object detectors, then top ten of them are probably like so close to each other when it comes to that specific metric because everybody's like optimizing the hell of it. So for me, it's like license. How easy it is to deploy? Like, does it have package? Does it have community? Because if I think about it, why should I take, you know, a model over another model if no Nobody will care about my problems. There is like no way I can install it easily. There is no documentation, but it's like a percent better at some specific metric. Like in practice, uh, you, it, does, it usually doesn't matter pretty much. Yeah. So to sum it up, yeah, if I have, I, I even recorded some videos about it in, in, in areas that I already encountered, like 15 different models I follow some path if the model is doing something completely different uh, then i just i just spend a little bit of time which is usually like 15 hours <laughs> after the release to kind of like uh, understand what's going on and yeah i have an opinion on it, so. so with something like segment anything which is transformative mm-hmm. with how sophisticated it is 
when you see something like that and then compare it to an extremely expensive paid option, like Adobe Photoshop, their algorithms and how they mm-hmm. do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on how like the performance and functionality within private software and the research that's done internally mm-hmm. for, for like profit mm-hmm. compares to open source and how would you, what are your thoughts on, would we be in a different place, you know, humankind, if for-profit companies just gave that stuff away for free? I So, obviously, it's like, there are, there are different dynamics when you compare open source and, and products, you know? So, um, Photoshop, for example, started to release Let's let's take different models, like diffusion models that can uh, in-paint stuff on the image or extend the the image beyond the original original borders. Yeah, so they they released that probably like a year after I was doing that in Google Colab on my local machine. Yeah, uh, obviously, what they released like the the thing that we need to understand is like, if you are a coder and you feel comfortable in this area, you can hack those solutions probably way before they will release that as a product. But 98% of people will not be okay with having that experience. Right. So I understand why building the product, like, I understand why they charge money for it. They don't really charge money for the how great that feature is because honestly, if you take Stable Diffusion, Excel, you will be able to do the same thing. You can do that. You can can go on Hugging Face and in the free space probably hack something over there. They charge for the experience, for the ease of use, for the you know, convenience. Yeah. And people are like, I, I myself, I, I pay for stuff sometimes. Yeah. I, I pay for chat GPT, uh, even though there are other alternatives, but I, I see how convenient it is for me to work with it. So I paid $10, of, you know, every month for it. And I am certain that there are other people who would like to have convenience and they, and they, uh, and they pay for that. Uh, are those models like better? My my guess is like probably also like Mid Journey, for example. Mid Journey is probably like like it's pretty good ahead of the competition. I know that Dali Free is there, but I I still think that Mid Journey is like mm-hmm. this is like this is something that uh, that is on another level. They don't release a lot of information how it works, but I'm I'm. Constantly impressed how it works and what I can do with that. So, um, so I think there there is definitely something there. Uh, as for other models, like what Adobe released, I, I I was like, I was like, okay, okay, you pay for convenience. It, it, it is in the editor, but it, it was nothing nothing that blew my mind. Uh-huh. Yeah, I have a similar experience, which is sad to say because, you know, we work for a company that 
that hosts some of the most cutting edge open mm-hmm. source language models, you know, mm-hmm. Databricks buying Mosaic ML. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm aware. <laughs> Chat GPT and OpenAI's service for that, using that for me is actually cost savings. So if I'm just on that, asking it a couple of questions about mm-hmm. how do I do this thing in JavaScript? Here's like what I want, like exactly. generate some code for me so I can test it and then run it and then tell it that, oh, you're, the code you gave me is broken with this. Like, I think I need to you know change it this way. But if I'm doing that for a half an hour, uh, I might make 30 or 40 rest calls effectively through that chat interface. Mm-hmm. Now, if I want to self-host an open source LLM for just my own personal use and use like MPT 30B or something, that's mm-hmm. a big model. If I want performance, that's now got to be hosted on a VM that has GPU access. Mm-hmm. So I'm paying, what, 20 bucks an hour mm-hmm. to spin up that VM, host that model, and I have to build the infrastructure for it, and I have to build a JavaScript front end that implements the chat interface. Mm-hmm. That's a week of my life that I'm spent just setting up that infrastructure and code that i can deploy to that and then every time that i'm done using it i have to go in and say hey hey shut down because i i don't want to sit there and pay like you know whatever 27 dollars an hour for aws mm-hmm. so it yeah that convenience aspect really does make sense you know the economy of scale but if you're doing something for 250 500 people at your company that everybody's going to be interfacing with this one GPU instance that now all of a sudden changes the balance where it's like, Hey, I can host this open source model for 20 bucks an hour and 500 yeah. people can use it. And it it's makes like, sense. Yeah. And, and especially like if you count in other things like privacy, depends on the company, but if you're a, like a bank, for example, <clears throat> and there is like a bunch of, you know, uh, data about the customers I love those stories when 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 somebody says that uh, some company suddenly understood that people are copying and pasting stuff into the ChatGPT UI uh, in those companies. Like like I I would recommend spending a little bit of time on educating your staff about data privacy and how stuff works. But it is what it is. But uh, talking about the tools, like you you said that you you use those. Uh, LLMs to help you do stuff faster. My favorite uh, uh, argument that I have from time to time is that people have, oh, but, but it's wrong sometimes. It's wrong sometimes. Sure. Uh, yeah, and and I accept that, and you accept that. But many people were like, I don't use that because it's wor- it's wrong sometimes. <laughs> Where I I have like <coughs> everything right now. I have like I I, I am using uh, PyCharm. And I have like AI assistant in, in PyCharm. I am using uh, uh, a terminal that has, uh, you know, AI assistant. If I type in my command uh, wrongly, it will tell me that I oh you should fix that. This this is a typo. Um, or if I get like exception, you you copy and paste your exceptions. I get I get suggestions in the terminal what I can <coughs> change. Uh, to fix the exception, and obviously I use ChatGPT and, and all, all other stuff. So I think that it will, it it it, it has um, a lot of impact. I remember I was doing a visualization some time ago. Um, I was doing like embeddings of images, yeah, and then I was visualizing that in three D space. So, mm-hmm. so I was using like a model to create like a vector for every image, and then you can 
limit the dimensionality of that to like three, and then you can visualize that as a, as a dot, yeah, and you can see clusters of images with similar stuff. And so I was working on a, on a demo where I, I was doing exactly that, but I, I say I would like to be able to click on that dot and see the image associated with that dot. That would be cool, or hover on. Yeah? There's nothing like that, but you can hack solutions using like Plotly. This is like Python library that's awesome because it's like half Python, half JavaScript, and you can get uh, interactive visualizations. And I know a little bit JavaScript. I know Python. I work with Plotly, but doing custom stuff in Plotly is like a lot of headache. And yep. I was I I done that in like twenty minutes with ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. It was it blew my mind. I, after that, I was like, that would take me like eight hours easily. Oh, figure yeah. it all out, read the documentation, watch the tutorials, you know. So I think that there are definitely things where you you can leverage that and it will like work like charm. Just you you just need to be aware of the of the potential uh uh you know traps that can happen and just maneuver wisely and that's it. So I think that people in our space need to need to uh, make a peace with with the fact that this is the reality and either you use it or you don't but uh, either you use it or you're a dinosaur in my opinion pretty much not yet but it's 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 going into that direction going to I mean it's a, a quick and easy way to become a 10x developer if if you're already a really good dev and you you put stuff like github copilot mm-hmm. into vs code or pycharm and you have GPT-4 there as a plug-in tool. It's just stuff that it's not going to make you better at coming up with ideas or building yeah. you know, bespoke yeah. implementations. What it is going to help you with is the stuff that I'm sure you use it for the same thing that I do. Like, hey, I need to do this one thing that I know that it's going to take yeah, me a I day know, to figure I know this out. I know how it works, yeah. but I don't remember exactly. Or... Yeah, automating away boring stuff that we don't like to do. Yeah, I Where write like, hey, doc strings with it all the time. Yep, in unit tests, you know, you're like, hey, I had to write this this function that does these seven things, and it has these guards against these five different exceptions that I need to to handle. Mm-hmm. Please write these seven tests for me. I don't want to write these because I hate writing unit tests. Yeah. And then you can go in and tell it like, oh, you need to adapt this a little bit differently. And it responds to that and we'll fix it, you know, what it generates. I think it's going to become such a part of software engineering in general. Uh, and I see so many other engineers using it day in and day out. You just become so much more efficient because you're yeah. no longer yeah. context switching to annoying stuff. But there is a something that I'm a little bit scared, which is how is that influencing the junior developer role like what is the influence of those tools on junior devs Mm. Uh, do do companies still need junior devs at this point like how how because you know if i recall myself at the very beginning i i say that you know a senior dev with chat gpt can do a work of junior dev Definitely a lot faster than the junior dev can do that. And if you sure. price, you know, their uh, compensation and the time, I'm not sure if that's cheaper to have a junior dev. So the question is like, 
will will that be distractive for the, uh, <coughs> the junior dev role? Um, and also, like suddenly, everybody can be a junior dev because everybody can have Chat GPT and and just minimum knowledge, and they can just just oh, how do I do this? And you, you will get the the code, yeah. So so that's something that I don't yet know. Is it a positive factor or, or negative factor? But it's definitely the part of the community that's the mo- most vulnerable to to getting automated. Let's call it this way. Yeah, some of the tasks that a, like a tech lead would give to a junior dev, I think that will change over time uh, because some of it can be automated by somebody who has much more context. So you just give different tasks to people to make them learn and grow mm-hmm. into senior devs. Yeah. One of the things that I saw recently uh, in the last couple of days that really blew my mind with the latest build of GPT-4 is intuitive generation that kind of inferred what it was that I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. To give some context, I was building a new API and pasted some code from our open source repository that is related to what that feature was being built on top of. Built a feature, pasted none of that code into the terminal. Like It didn't have any context on that. Mm-hmm. And I was just wanted to see if I described what I wanted it to do with context of what the pre-existing code was. And then I wanted to know if he could figure out what I built that it didn't see. Mm-hmm. And it built the applied usage of the API correctly on the first try. Mm-hmm. It didn't it it didn't see any code that was related to that, but it understood the style and mm-hmm. even the naming conventions that were being mm-hmm. used. Mm-hmm. And it inferred this input type that it needed to get and wrote an example, even generated data to go into that uh, field. And I think though that sort of intuition, which was missing in earlier versions, like 3.5 mm-hmm. cannot do that. Yeah, it's yeah, not that yeah, sophisticated. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the next generation of post transformers based architecture for not just LLM stuff, but particularly computer vision. Where do you think this is going for the open source and research next? I think that in, in computer vision, we are like, one thing is multimodality, which is the phrase right now that everybody is talking about, which is funny because a year ago, nobody was talking about it. But I guess uh, life, is, uh, life is changing fast. So another thing is zero shot. And you can say zero shot detection or segmentation or whatever. Yeah. So, so that was our our initial initial like panic mode was when when there was this demo, the first demo of ChatGPT with Vision. It happened like months ago. It was that was very f- far away in time. There was like long gap between their, their, them actually releasing that feature, and they they you know they they unveiling that it exists. And back then we were like, oh, can it do zero shot detection, for example? Which is which is a a phrase that you describe a model that you don't specifically train on the list of classes. Mm-hmm. Like you, typically you, you would have like a model that you have 80 classes from Coco, 
and it's pre-trained on those 80 classes. If you have any custom class that you would like to detect, then you would need to have a data set of images, label them, train the model, and then you have this extra capability uh, to detect that class. With what is happening right now, and there is like I was on CVPR, which is the largest conference in computer vision this year, and there was like a ton of papers that were dedicated to zero shot segmentation or detection, which is pretty much detecting anything. Hmm. So I was doing um, a few examples. I had like a I usually use photos of my of, of me and my dog in different uh, circumstances, and we're in the we're in a restaurant. I had my dog on my on my lap, and I was like, "Okay, find the tail of the dog," and it and it drew bounding box around the tail. I was like, "Okay," oh. I was looking for like weird objects on the image, and there was like a drink with the straw in it, like straw was. Like, I doubt there is a straw in any data set. Any data set. And it was, it was capable to, of detecting that straw on the image. So it, it's like what, what they do is they train on large image data sets, but they also train on text data sets. Mm-hmm. And those relations are described in the text rather than vision right, examples. Yep. Yeah. And, and then, the model, when, when you ask for some object, then, then the model kind of like use the knowledge about the world to, spe- to locate something on the image that would fit the description. Um, so I think that we are going into that direction. The current situation is that there are a lot of use cases where you need to have real-time, in quotes, uh, uh, object detection. And those models are quite slow, so you need to pr- probably have like like a second or two for a single image to to get processed, which is obviously too slow. But you can use knowledge that is already in those models to automatically annotate data sets to train those faster models, and that's usually what we do right now. Um, and obviously, like there are some some uh, things that don't work, like for example. Uh, zero shot detection of semantically close to each other objects. Like if you think about like uh, glass, bottle, can, mug, everything holds drink in it. Every, everything you can hold in your hand, you can spill stuff from it. You can put it on a desk. So all of those words in text are in the same context usually. Like yep. so. So we had did I. Um, trash detection project and we wanted to detect like bottles on the grass like on the grass and in the forest like all sorts of stuff and those zero shot detectors like detected detected bottles but also detected like everything else that is semantically um close to it so there like the models exist already and they blew my mind one of the models that they said was my favorite model from this year is Segment Anything, and another is Grounding Dino, which is like state-of-the-art zero-shot detector. Um, and I'm and, and I'm blown away, but I also recognize the, the limitations. And I and I had an opportunity to talk to people who developed those models, and 
they are also aware of that and they are actively working into solving those problems. So God knows when where we will be in like two, three years. But uh, yeah, I think that this is definitely the direction. So kind of like zero shot. We will probably not train models anymore at some point in the future. We will just have that knowledge like about everything inside the model. What about Sorry. stuff like contextual generators that are not limited to uh, stuff like mid-journey, where it's just mm-hmm. a, a static 2D image, where mm-hmm. you could say, and it's not something that's that's like the uh, the deep fake, you know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna superimpose and combine these these images together to create something synthetic, but more text-based generative, where mm-hmm. you say, I'm gonna des- describe this animation that I want you to do, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it may be, say we're creating like documentation charts. We want to create an animated GIF that shows our architecture with, with things moving in and building itself or something. Mm-hmm. Um, how far away do you think it is before we get to something like that, that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that being AI generated or done by a professional graphics artist? So, so there are different kinds of models in that space. There are models that you, for example, uh, upload a single image and it can create a video from that image. And those are already, already exist. But if you, if you look at those videos, there, those videos are usually kind of like limited. Like they're like super, there's like super safe in a way that, okay, there is like a person and that person is like, is like turning turning around or just making a single step forward or something like that. So they are usually, uh, and it, it comes from the data sets that they are trained on because those data sets usually are very like short snippets of video and you have a, a training process where you have like single image and you the model needs to like come up with the full video and you kind of like, you know. So So it's also coming from the data that they are using for the training, but there is that. Obviously, there are also like full, fully text-based uh, models that can like something that was also hot on CBPR was 3D. So generating 3D objects based on text. We just say I don't know, like a mouse in the in the baseball cap, yeah, and it and it generates 3D asset that you can uh, I don't know drop into. Uh, Unreal Engine and 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 in use in your your game or three D animation whatever yeah, so I also think that um, there is something there and those are getting a lot better. Uh, those are, those can also work with image input, so you just drop a single image and you can get a three D representation of the objects from the image. So yeah, I think that uh, the quality of that is certainly not good enough to fool anybody. Yeah? Right. But if you if, if you think about deepfakes, then, then I feel that yeah, there is there is some merit to it. Um but also like mid-journey, I remember um and I don't want to dive into political discussions, but there was this moment when Donald Trump has prop had problems and was supposedly to get arrested. Mm-hmm. Um and somebody on Twitter generated a ton of like Donald Trump running from police in New York. <laughs> and so help me God, people were people were like, 
they legitimately believe that those are like real photos oh, of, yeah. of the of the event happening in New York right now. And it's like somebody is like live reporting what is happening. And if and it and of course, like if you if you know anything about those models, you saw like six fingers or you know, some weird asymmetry and something that you know somebody has Ring, uh, uh, earring. Uh, how, how do you say that? Uh, earring, yeah. Earring, earring yeah. one ear and not the other. I mean, I, it happens in real life, but usually when you talk about like politicians, I doubt like uh, people will have like only a single one. Um, but the quality there is like very close to to what you would expect to create the political drama. Um. But I think that the oh the the one that is definitely super close, it's not with image, it's with voice. Yeah. This one, we are like in Poland, like I said, we don't have cool startups. There is one startup called Eleven Labs, and it's in Poland. And honestly, we had elections in Poland this year, and they literally used Eleven Labs voice generation. To produce election-related content, yeah. So th- th- those varies from different things. Like one of the popular things was like uh, top Polish politicians play LOL League of Legends together, and they are in the lobby and they argue <coughs> about choosing champions. And like you are hearing that, and this is your prime minister arguing funny. with your um, with your uh, you know some important politician. Uh, why did you chose this, this champion <laughs> over the other? And it was like super legitimately um, hearing like, you know, it sounded like very real. But there was also like something that there was a leak of something that was very smart was like leak of official emails. So imagine like in the US, there was also like things like that, I, I believe like... Uh, Several times. Hillary Clinton had something like that yeah. also. Yeah. So just imagine that her emails leaked and her opposition is producing content when she's reading her own email that mm-hmm. leaked. And there is something obviously wrong in that email, some, something that she is not proud of. And she's yes. like saying that out loud. And there is like small font over that, that the voice was generated uh, using AI. Yeah, But psychologically, if you think about it, how 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 you know, how what is the hook of 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 like lector reading that, and what is the hook of actual voice of that person reading that in TV, for example? So, so this is something that happened this year during our elections. There was like a bunch of emails um, from within the government, and they even had this like voices where there are multiple politicians talking to each other, and and different voices read parts that they. Uh, they say, and what is even cooler, you can actually modulate that so that they sound angry or whatever. Yeah, so if they can shout at each other, like crazy thing. And I think that in that area, we are super close to to fooling people that is actually happening. I know that there was also like very sophisticated attacks where somebody needs to target you specifically, but uh, people were also scammed. Like um, somebody is calling you and it's your wife, for example, like from, from different phone, but it's like you, you answer and it's your wife. And she's saying that she needs money. I don't know. She's in trouble, whatever, whatever. She had like 
an accident, lost her phone, but somebody very polite landed the phone and she needs like money to pay whatever for the Give you me know, your credit to, card to number. be towed into the you know uh, some some place whatever and this is already happening like there was already um articles about that happening in Poland and it's actually very easy because what you need to have is only 5 minutes of your voice so mm. just imagine how easy it is somebody can call from call center have a conversation about like a like a new car doesn't matter what you talk about. Like it doesn't really matter. What matters is that they have five minutes of you talking, and they can clone your voice. And from that point, they can uh, generate that voice snippets if they are short enough. That you can even stream that, so you can do it in like semi real time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that part is just curious. I guess. Guess right now. Like, yeah, there's some fun YouTube channels that are out there. That to get away from the criminal aspect, but um, <laughs> of using this technology to have very famous people through history that we do have voice recordings of people that have been dead for mm-hmm. a long time, mm-hmm. narrating documentaries about that have been made about the, their original work, <clears throat> which I find fascinating. People using that that generative audio technology, mm-hmm. and it's just surreal. And you're like, hang on. The video for this was definitely shot in 2023. Yeah. And that person died like 30 years ago, but it sounds like they're actually narrating what's on screen. And you really can't tell the difference between what they're saying and, you know, watching some news footage of them from decades ago. It's fascinating. It's almost like bringing they can, they can also speak in different languages, which is also super, uh, super awesome. Like <laughs> if we talk about positive aspects, one of the things that is happening right now also is the combination of voice and, and leap movement generation, where you can pretty much uh, voice over um, movies with the original actor's voice and the oh, leaps wow. are moving accordingly. Uh, there's a startup, I don't remember the name for it, but they work with, with you know, with like Disney or or uh, Warner Brothers, doesn't matter. And they can translate movies using original actors' voices with leaps moving accordingly. So it's like kind of like weird when somebody that you know from Hollywood speaks like fluent like Mandarin or whatever. Uh, or Polish. Uh, or Polish, yeah. And and like no accent whatsoever. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I I I'm not sure if we will go into that direction because it's like maybe maybe with younger generation they will be so used to that happening. For me, it's like I I, I get like you know something something in me says that it's, it's something is wrong. But, like if you uh, heard Nicolas Cage, like he sounded like he was from Warsaw. You'd yeah. Be like, uh, what the heck? I, yeah. What the heck? Yeah. But. But I, I can see that being uh, interesting and, and useful for for a movie industry, for example. So, mm-hmm. so there is also this this trend of of um, uh, generating, like in I guess in Star Wars that happened uh, from prominently, where you take um, the actor that is no longer uh, yeah. alive and you generate. Uh, uh, a, a version of it that is completely CGI'd, but they use AI, not not CGI like old school, old school, like you know the typical CGI where you just model everything and 
spend a lot of time modeling. You you just you just take actor that is similar, and you just uh, train a bunch of models, and 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 suddenly you have somebody that is uh, that already. Yeah, which is also. I don't know. I mean, like, it's it's kind of cool that it can they can make those cameos, but at the same time, it's also a little bit weird. But I know that some people from Hollywood pretty much sold their uh, the rights to their um, face to be used in the future, and and they get money for that. Uh, yeah. So. Crazy times. Crazy times. Absolutely yeah. insane. Yeah, it's it's cool how AI is sort of. And AI in the like general sense, it's sort of blurring the line between reality and and like human generated content. And I think we're still pretty far away in the physical sense of like maybe three D printing something that's Gen AI'd. But um, in digital sense, there's a lot that can be done. Um, as, as a person coming from uh, civil engineering, I can tell you that there are already. Um, Maybe you know about it, but you can already model structural elements in the generative way. So you know it's always a balance of of, of weight and strength. Yes. Yeah? So so how much how much do I need to have to hold this pressure or this force? Yeah. And you can. But usually it's like you know there is like very complicated way to calculate how the forces flow into the structure, and you can iteratively remove you know part of the material run the uh, whole simulation once again see how that influenced that then take one more part and you know after uh, some uh, some amount of uh, iterations you can get with element that is significantly lighter and only have material in the places that the material actually matters so obviously stuff like that is already used but in in edge cases like F1 races, if you need to optimize the car to have the right weight, but you need to be able to sustain extreme forces, this is something that you can do. And, and with their manufacturing techniques, they can manufacture the actual element because you know it's not only about knowing what is what is the what is the uh, you know ge- geometry of the element. You need to also be able to manufacture it. Uh, so obviously, it's not. Uh, profitable right now but of course if you think about like space exploration planes f1 those are the places where you can pay extra to to remove a little bit of the weight for example so generative ai let's call it this way is also used in those places um but not so much in pure civil engineering like we're not going to be uh, building bridges like bridges, that, right? Bridges, for example, with bridges, I believe they 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 use uh, something like that to model. Like sometimes mm-hmm. you aim for something that is very, you know, very inconvenient. Yeah, uh, uh, sorry, like uh, not inconvenient. Something that is like unusual. Sorry, so something that is unusual. Um, uh, and and in those cases, they use stuff like that. But you know, I, I'd say as a person coming from civil engineering, like ninety-five percent of the structures that people design, those are like straight up. Like you have the table, you read the table, you add yeah. that value to another value, and it happens like this. So there are absolutely rare cases where you need to use computer to calculate because you couldn't do that on paper. Usually, 
use computer because it's faster. Rarely something because it's so complicated that it wouldn't be able to do that, uh, on, you know, in, on the paper. Yeah, I'm sure it'll change CAD, like computer animated design, and just all of the the physical system design. Um, imagine having GitHub Copilot, but for your CAD. <laughs> like, I want a screw now. Make me a Thanks. screw. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, model, 3D modeling screw is, is, you know, it's like a 30 minute of your time. I know. It was a final project for the intro to uh, mechanical engineering at my university. Yeah. For yeah. like the intro course. Yeah. So it can, it can save a lot of time. So like we said, like generating 3D objects, for example, based on text input, like I can see that being used in games and in CAD and in architecture and all sorts of places. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, I will quickly wrap and then we'll kick it over to see if there are any any sort of next steps for the listeners. So to summarize, we talked about a lot of really, really cool stuff. Uh, Some use cases for computer vision are sports, infrastructure, manufacturing, self-driving cars. But anything with with visual representations of data can be applied with CV. if you're looking to get into this space, if you're a coding nerd and want to spend 15 hours a day, open source is a good path. But if not, maybe try to try to figure out an alternative way. And don't do it if you're just in it for the money. There are probably easier ways to make a ton of money. Um, also, building things that people use is typically very rewarding. Um, and that also can get you recognition. So self-marketing without actually backing it up with a skill set typically doesn't work and you'll get found out pretty fast. Um, one cool state-of-the-art model that is worth checking out is Segment Anything by, by the organization Meta, formerly Facebook. And then when you're thinking about modeling uh, and picking a model, don't just think about accuracy. Think about the license, ease of development, community around that. Um, there's a lot of factors beyond having that 0.1% improvement um, because typically they're highly optimized for the specific data set um, when they publish this paper. So being generalizable is really important. And then deep fakes are scary. So, Piotr, if people want to reach out uh, and learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Uh, so I hope it will be somewhere linked uh, so that they can find it. But uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I have my uh, typical nick that I use in pretty much every platform uh, right now on the screen. So this is exact nick that I use on GitHub. You can find all sorts of things that I built over there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ranging from JavaScript projects, uh, don't hate on JavaScript, and uh, and up to uh, I don't know crazy uh, object removal from video projects that I lately worked on. So you can find a lot of cool stuff there. I'm also active on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, so if you uh, are not yet uh, spammed by people on the internet. You can certainly follow me. I try to be uh, active, but I usually post about about cool stuff. So if you are interested in uh, multimodality, computer vision, NLP, uh, I I tend to spam about that. Uh, and people are usually interested. So <laughs> maybe that's that's a good uh, uh, yeah. Cool. advertisement a little bit yeah yeah nice all right well until next time it's been michael burke and my co-host ben wilson and have a good day everyone thank you very much thanks for having me guys thank you pleasure